Jamesy the Band. Find their music at jamesythebandband.bandcamp.com. Shout out to my cousin, Cole Hem, singer-songwriter, with the band Jamesy. The shadows never last. to the broadcast. Time to take off the mask. Hey, Charles. Good morning, Stefan. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I am a little uh, frustrated. I I was trying to get onto FaceTime yet again, and after, you know, when you told me you were up and reading, that whole time I was trying to get on, and... It kept trying to sign me in, but then the server could not do it. So, I don't know. It might be my internet connection over here. Um, Interesting. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to... I'm, I can't... I, I'm going into the um, the link where you forget a password, and then it asks me to type in my trusted phone number, so I do. And then it sends me a verification code, and it asks me for it, so I put it in. And then it says server cannot complete request. Oh, okay. So that was uh, okay. when I can when I can finally get on FaceTime, we'll be able to video record the FaceTime, and uh, <laughs> and I think that might be nicer and easier for audio. Right now, I have a microphone um, a few inches in front of the speaker of my phone. Okay. What's this microphone here? And then I have my own. And then I have my own microphone, so sound quality should be okay. Sounds good then. Yeah. Did you have any time to meditate this morning? I was reading Steiner. Uh, did not meditate though. Mm-hmm. It's it's always insightful. The um, the the end of the book. This one. I'm towards the end right now. This one. Esoteric science. Yeah. An outline uh, of esoteric sti- science. 
Okay. So it, it, it starts with um, uh, the origin of the human soul, if you may, the different parts of it. And eventually, towards the end, he talks about exercises on how to to develop your spiritual organs. Mm. And it's really interesting. Uh, it takes uh, almost like 350 pages to get there. But eventually, towards the end, it's it's really interesting. He, he takes everything that he's, he's talked about at the beginning, and he gives exercises, and he explains in more detail how it is, but it's really interesting, seriously. Um, Recommend it. Do you have any uh, examples of one of these exercises? What kind of things does he say to do um, for the spiritual organs? And also, what does he mean by spiritual organs? Well, spiritual organs is, it, it's hard to tell, it's just that you have your physical organs right. that, that makes you live. I, I think the spiritual organs are more like the chakras. He doesn't name them like that way. Like an energetic correspondence, like the energetic frequency of those physical organs, kind of thing. In a way, that's in a way that's what it is. Yeah. And the exercise he has in mind is the growing of uh, of a flower. Ooh. I think he may have uh, he has some influence uh, from uh, the Rosicrucians because he talks about a rose. He talks about the rose cross as well, but one of the, the uh, exercises is to take the creation of uh, of a flower from the germination to mm. its death. So, but you see, it's it's not. It, the, you start with the physical form, but eventually, you you remove the physical form, and and you get into the spiritual form or the astral form of the. Flower. All the phases of the flower grow to death, uh, birth to death. I haven't started. I just read about it a couple of days ago, but I'm going to start to death. It looks like a really nice exercise. Um, that uh, does sound like a really nice exercise. I, um, it makes me think of a few things. One is that uh, the flower, um, the rose, apparently is an ancient... Uh, mystical symbol used by many traditions. Um, the thing about the um, different phases of the flower's growth, it seems to be a theme that I keep stumbling upon. I'm doing a, a ritual called Resh. Do you know about the Resh ritual? I heard about it. That's a, uh, is it Goeth? Uh, Goetian magic? Uh, no, I believe it's ancient Hebrew magic. I believe the Resh is an R, Hebrew R, called Resh. And that would probably... Oh, Resh, the letter Resh. Okay. The letter Resh, yeah. The, the rite is, is named after Resh, and I believe it's a code for rabbi. And what they okay. do, what they do, what the ritual is, is uh, the four um, points of the sun. So the rising sun, the midday sun, the setting sun and the um, midnight sun. And uh, in some of my readings, the midnight sun was described as having that kind of like the seed, the unrealized potential, the uh, rest, the incubation period of, of the four cycles, being that of rising, full bloom, setting or decline, and then this silent, hidden potentiality of a state. 
And um, interesting that he, so he, so Rudolf Steiner asks us or encourages us to visualize what ourselves or our organs as flowers or just visualize a flower um, in order to stimulate more metaphysical harmony. What is so it? From what, I from what I understand, we start by having the flower external from us. And later on, I imagine you, it, there, should, there could be a transfer from the flower to us. It's just easier, I think, to imagine uh, the evolution of the flower than it is to imagine our own self. I, why I think that is because the, um, everything around us, religion, education, everything is external to us. We are told what to do. We are, are told how it is. We are told not to diverge. And it, it sucks the imagination out of us. So to break that kind of cycle, you still have to continue what you know, which is external sort of, an external sort of manifestation. And I, I imagine later on, it, the transfer, there's going to be a transfer between the outer to the inner self. I, I think it's not only... I, I, think, I think you're correct, but I, I think it's not only the external kind of influences that make it harder to visualize ourselves. Just a flower is simply much more simple in its process than human. And, and another interesting detail that my mind wanders to is that we are very much... Most creatures on planet Earth are follow a certain pattern of growth. And, um, like, are you aware that our embryonic state and the embryonic state of a duck are closely related for, I think, the first 30 days? I mean, they look, they look alike. Yeah, it was, um, it was a high school biology class. And, uh, and we had a textbook that gave us a page of all, it was about 30 animals in embryonic state. And it was a, a few pictures of like x-ray or, or um, ultrasound. I'm not sure what the images were, but all of the animals in embryonic state for the first two weeks start off with the same shapes and patterns. Then they grow, and only into about 30 days and then three months do the species start to actually separate in embryonic form. And if you think about how a seed grows... They, too, follow very similar <laughs> geometric patterns while they're forming. Yeah. So there seems to be some sort of connectivity, some sort of format to the structure of existence from which we are seeded. And that also might be a metaphysical plus to kind of tap into that universality of the pattern and using the flower as a simplified version of your own pattern. I mean, and a flower is complex too, but we don't see it as such. Um. There is a there is communication uh, between the flowers. There's also communication between flowers and and whatever insect goes to feed off them. Uh, you, do you? Uh, what kind of communication? Do you mean electromagnetic uh, radiation or? Well, there, there is smell for one. There's okay. color, there's patterns. And mm. think about the orchid. What does an orchid look like well, other than it looks like a genitalia? Um, it looks like a landing pad for 
for a, a B, really. Well, let's explore this thought right now. <laughs> um, you said an orchid looks like genitalia. You mean the female genitalia, correct? Yeah, obviously. And you also said that an orchid looks like a landing pad for a bee, correct? Correct. Well, I can report to you that I feel like the female genitalia feels like a landing pad to me. <laughs> Specifically my tongue. My wife's right around the corner. She's going to have to laugh at that. Yeah, well, that's okay. <laughs> Well, there is some sort of genetic kind of um, uh, stimuli to our instincts as men with uh, the female genitalia, as is with the orchid and the bee. That's what I'm trying to point out. The birds and the bees. The birds and the bees, yeah. The flowers and the trees. Well, that was a fun little thought. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I meant by communication, because the colors, mm-hmm. the, the patterns, all that stuff, it's all meant to, attra- meant to attract the insect that it wants to attract. And uh, the insects are potentially, I would say, also programmed to follow that certain scent and yeah. uh, follow that certain shape and land on, on it and then grab whatever it needs from there. Yeah, a lot of animals rely on color and scent, like birds and, and the male, uh, you know, the peacock, for example, and then scent, like dogs always sniffing each other's butts and stuff and leaving uh, leaving kind of a trail landmark of their own urine scent and paw scent, etc. Uh, we humans also do that. Uh, we're just kind of, uh, in our civilization process, we've kind of, sterilized a lot of our scents and stuff like that because there are scents that are off-putting and they're probably meant to be off-putting as a warning uh, in certain ways um have you ever been in close proximity to someone that you find repugnant in their odor yeah i have a strong sense of smell and Me too. Uh, I'm, I'm affected by that that kind of uh by bad, by bad smell, but some smells, yeah, some some smell. I just I just can't be around the person because it's it's gross. What um, what do you attribute that to in experience? You know, any kind of scientific theory, any kind of emotional theory. What do you think that this is? This sense of smell that keeps us away from others, as well as attracts us. As well as attracts us. I'm sure you've also experienced smells that are attractive. Like, you're like, ooh, that's a really nice smell. Or like wine. Absolutely. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think we lost the ability to, um, to differentiate the different smells. We have, well, the smells we can't really smell, the pheromones for, for us men. And for female, they have their own uh, sort of uh, sense that they, they like. They like go depending on on the time of the month. The men, men and women are the same that way. Mm-hmm. The, but I think we forgot the to deal with the smell because we we put deodorant, uh, we put perfume. We've all overwhelmed our sense, and we forgot what what the scents are for. Because mm-hmm. the, for example, we had that conversation a couple of weeks back about the trees uh, emitting a smell. 
like a scent to mm-hmm. the other trees to warn them an insect is a, a certain type of insect is munching on them right and for us i think for us we also have that the warnings the attraction and all that yeah but but we don't it's a it's an instinct sort of uh, reaction and we we've forgotten it because there's so many smells out there. Like I go to my garage, my it smells like fuel because of my my uh, my snowblower. Then you go outside, it smells like exhaust because there's a lot of cars going around. You go to work, it smells of perfume because people put perfume and often don't care about other people around. Modesty. Them. And then, <laughs> well, but it's supposed to be scent scent free, but some people just don't just don't, just don't get that. Oh. And you go about the, around the photocopier, but it smells like to- toner. Uh, What's toner? Ink toner? Oh, ink toner. Oh, wow. Yeah, ink toner. So there's so many smells around us that are overwhelming that we, we can't, we, we disregard what we have and block it. What kind, of val- what kind of value would smell add to our human experience? And what kind of value have we lost through all this masking and smell pollution? Warnings yeah. and, uh, it's like they talked about uh, dogs sniffing butts. Okay. Uh, the smell for them, uh, because they have, uh, they can, because they can sense, the, the nose is a sensor, and because it senses, they can sense higher and lower frequencies than we can, they can, they get access to the, the, the rest of the, the information that we don't have. So when they sniff it for each other, but um, they know if the, the other dog actually, how, how the other dog likes them or how they feel. And they stay, they know to stay away from them or to stay close. Mm-hmm. No? Yeah, that's... Uh, it's just, it should be the same with us. We should be able to, to smell... Well, also in our environment, poisons. Uh, I often wonder how did we decipher which mushrooms and berries were poisonous versus edible? I think that was trial and error. <laughs> well, trial and error, sure. But do you, do, you think that, do you think that our sense of nose was our guide in a lot of cases? I think it may. Yeah. I think it may have been. Well, you know, when you... When you go in the forest and you have a good sense of do you have a good sense of smell? I have a pretty good sense of smell. Uh, um, I could smell pheromones. I, I notice pheromones a lot of times, and um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It used to in high school really bother me, uh, especially when teenagers uh, are full of pheromones and and not great on um, personal hygiene. Um. I, I I could I could smell the pheromones of um, the menstruation cycle, and with different women, it's it's different, and sometimes it's extremely kind of oh get away, and sometimes it's slightly aromatic. It's weird. Um, so yeah, I have a good sense of smell, but I don't think I've ever noted smelling ink toner. However, I'm not always around copy machines, so. Um, you may have a slightly more sensitive smell, but it is pretty acute, my sense of smell. Um, so you, you went pretty deep on that pheromone thing. Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I, can, I can smell to a certain extent. I can also smell, for example, you know, you know when a, ba- a very young baby 
Yes. Cheese in the diaper. Yeah. I can smell it before the mother can actually smell it. Mm-hmm. So when I so where I was leading to is if when I go in the forest, I I there's a lot of smells yeah. around, and it's it's there's so many of them that it's 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 almost overwhelming and it's hard to differentiate the different smells that we have. But mm-hmm. if you were to train yourself enough, you would be able to smell. Oh, there are mushrooms that are edible here because I smell them. In a way, you, yeah. have, you have to train your brain to, to filter the different smells. Like pine smell is very easy to, to distinguish because it's, it's, it's overwhelming. Then you'll get the, the new bud of certain trees. Then you get, okay, I get, I get that one. And then when you're around the lilac, that's super overwhelming. But eventually, you, if, if you train yourself to do this, you could... Determine. You could look around and, and determine. Okay, I have this kind of mushroom, this kind of flower, this kind of tree. And there's an animal that way. And yeah. But you, you would have to train yourself. Uh, um. Well, you know that I have a. Uh, I live in uh, um, the Holland Marsh, a micro ecosystem. My backyard's a little micro ecosystem, and um, I go out there and um, I haven't really conscious, conscious. Consciously train myself to smell things, but <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me again. Um, what I've done, what I've noticed is that if I sit in a breeze, I'll catch different whiffs of different things as they pass through the the airflow, the currents, and that's kind of caused me to create like a recognition of oh, this is that, and this is that, and and you know also experimentation, go, going and exploring, but. I do note when I could when I smell an animal has passed through a path that I'm walking on my property. Um, that's quite evident. I could sometimes, through smelling the animal, sense whether what whether it was a raccoon, a coyote, or a feral cat. Um, um, and then I'll collect evidence later, and that's how that's how that's kind of come to fruition. Like. Evidence like some some defecation or something like that, or I'll see the animal or something. Um, but yeah, sense of smell is definitely like if you have a camp, you're gonna want to know how to recognize that uh, when you leave the camp about ten yards out, there's been a coyote watching you, you know, <laughs> or or yeah, right, or a bear or something. Um, yeah, although some animals uh, they don't give you much warning. Uh, but um, what about hearing? What do you think, since we're talking about the senses, how, how what do you think is more, uh, what do you think about the comparative differences? Like we try, tend to rely a lot on our visual stimuli. We also rely on, and, we, and we're talking, discussing how we ignore our smell, which is also maybe we should discuss as attached to taste. But what about our hearing? Like, what um? It's all this. Uh, it's all what the is, same. Charles. Uh, so, for for example, uh, when you listen to a symphony or you listen to uh, a song, uh, if you pay attention, you you will you should be able to differentiate the bass guitar, the lead guitar, the, the right, the rhythm guitar, the drums. And all these things, you should be able to differentiate them. And, to, and if you're good enough 
and you train yourself long enough, you can listen to symphony and you can differentiate, you should be able to differentiate the entire list of instruments you have in there. But again, it, it, it's about training. Yes, and sometimes it's not even about training. It's just about focusing in, and you can tell the differences between the different sounds uh, if you're listening to um, even birds. Uh, I, I, when you said a symphony uh, and you were describing the different um, instruments, uh, birds have rhythmic song and uh, communication style, and and, and you, in the mornings around here, I have a symphony of bird calls, and... Uh, I like to just relax in the middle amongst the calls outside and uh, kind of tune in to each one individually and spend a little bit of time with each call and, and kind of hear where it's coming from in the 360 degrees around me. And and um, I, I was more wondering if you knew anything, any metaphysical details about audio Um our audio, our audio senses. Have you ever heard uh, your name called and there's no one around? Yes, I've had a couple other freaky hearing clear audience things too. So I, well, we, I think we've all had that. Like, say, Stefan, and then you look around like, okay, what's going on? Is that my imagination? And I asked a question to one of my mentors in the past. And his, um, his explanation was, it's just to make you realize that there's something else out there. Hmm. I, I thought it was interesting. Hmm. Uh, is, is it a warning? Or is it really to, to make you realize that there's something out there? Because if you hear your, your name called, I mean, it's, it's, it's your name. It's very personal. So you can't really mistake that. But why would it happen? What do you think it would happen, Charles? Um, I think, um, I actually believe that all these frequencies kind of blend and create different dimensions, each frequency being its own kind of dimension if, if looked at from a singular perspective. Um, and, um, so yeah, that comment is very valid that it's just to show you that there's something else out there, but... I've had, I've had my own voice or a different voice kind of out, like wake up out of a dream or out of a meditation and, and hear a voice speak a sentence, uh, abstract sentences, or sometimes, well, here's one sentence that I'll never forget because I'm, I'm searching for the meaning of it. I'm assuming it has meaning. It said, consciousness when focused densifies into matter. And I think that's talking about, I think that's talking about frequency and materialization, and yeah. But um, and that's been a kind of a nice little thing, and maybe that was my own mind realizing something and kind of filtering and spitting it out with a with a voice. Um, I've had a couple other things. You want to share a few stories of uh, of clear audience? Once, no, no, I don't really have anything else. Don't oh. on the road now, so I, I, I have two stories. One, one is just an interesting exercise I did, and that was uh, sitting in the, in the marsh and, uh, again, tuning into bird calls. And I heard a singular bird call, but it was patterned as such as there was another bird calling, calling it. But in my original objective hearing, 
I couldn't hear another bird. So then I meditated and I just focused on that call. The one call was like a cuckoo, whatever. And I just kept listening to the one call. And eventually, I focused in so much, I could so faintly hear the other recipient of the call that was responding that my imagination pegged as being, you know, on the other side of the, of, uh, or at the edge of Cook's Bay, so about, about uh, 20 kilometers away. And I'm sure that the animal's senses are much better than our own. I mean, it's reported that dog sense of smell and dog sense of hearing is far greater than our own, but perhaps that's just because we're ignoring it. And in that exercise, I was able to tune into um, regular human uh, capabilities that we just neglect to exercise. So that's one interesting detail about sound. Another one is maybe more imaginative, but um, more than once I've kind of um, said something in my brain that I wanted somebody to do, and then right as I'm saying it, they say the same thing. That might just be a coincidence. But, but it was more as they were going in one direction, one course of action, and I wanted them to change course of actions to be more agreeable for even them. And, um, and I said something in my head, and, and then they changed course of action with that same statement and repeated the statement. I always wondered what that was, what kind of a... And, and whether or not coincidences even... Do you think coincidences are real or coincidences are examples of how mechanical our existence is, quantum physics-wise? I, I think you make... For coincidences, um, some people will see coincidences in absolutely everything. Eventually, you can make anything seem like a coincidence. Okay. A car drives by the, the street. Oh, something's going to happen. A black cat goes around the corner. Oh, something bad's going to happen. So I think there's a lot of superstition. Uh, I think uh, some coincidences are just... Uh, it's, it's, for example, my wife and I, when we met, we happened to be in the same city, both traveling, and ended up in the same hotel, St. Paul, and we met that way. What a coincidence. Exactly. So yeah. that's a happy coincidence, obviously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, but certain things like this, in coincidence, have an impact on your life. And some coincidences don't have any impact at all. Right. Like you and I meeting at the, at the convention in San Jose. Uh, I, I, met, uh, I met Justin first. And mm -hmm. uh, Justin came to me and said, hey, you want to be friends? None of those words, but that, that's almost... That's he almost also did that to me, and then he introduced the two of us. That was yeah, so sweet and said, strange. Oh, I like this guy. You want yeah. to be friends? And then he, then he said, hey, Steph, do you mind for bringing another friend together? And sure, another one. Huh? Said, yeah. oh, let's all be friends. And he said, oh, we have a few beers and in a club outside. We came back at 3 o'clock in the morning. And, yeah. Oh, I should move that one. Okay. Anyway, so, and then, uh, yeah, and then... Four years later, we're, we we spent a lot of time online. We we already met once. We're gonna go to Rome together. So that's another happy coincidence that actually has a consequence in the world. So consequences they don't all matter, but most of them do. 
But are consequences kind of like uh, the time-space continuum where they're kind of illusions of our perspective is kind of what you believe? that I, I lean towards that idea. You know, a coincidence. Uh, like you say, you can make a coincidence out of anything. So we are making the coincidences with our perspectives. So it's a it's, it is a coincidence if you want it to be a coincidence. If you choose to disregard it, it no longer is a coincidence, and it has no impact on your life. All right. And um, what about synchronicities? You know, that's interesting. Carl Jung has a book on synchronicity. Uh, it, it's in there. I haven't read it yet. But it's, it's, it's like, oh, you see the number 444, four, four, it means this. You see the number 111, it means this. Well, okay, I come back from work, always, I used to come back from work always the same time, and eventually I look at my clock in my car, it's 444. Four, four. I'm about the same place I am every single day. So is it synchronicity, or is it just something that happens every day because I'm looking for it? So there's the synchronicity that you look for, and the synchronicity, I think that just is synchronicity. But what is synchronicity? That's a good question. What's your uh, take on that? Uh, well, I think Carl Jung, call, um, what he calls synchronicity is more of a coincidence that has, um, uh, how should I say, that has, because uh, I'm paraphrasing and I haven't read Carl Jung. I'm, I've, I've just kind of um, studied him from other people through other people's words, etc. Um, but so s what he's saying is it, it's, a, it's a coincidence that when it happens has um, important meaning, meaning slash impact on the individual um, having the experience. So that's what he calls synchronicity. And, and because of the impact it has, he lays value on it, and he actually describes it as a phenomenon. Now, further, I don't know what take he has on it, what kind of phenomena. Is it a metaphysical phenomena? Is it an emotional phenomena? Is it a physical phenomena? I'm not sure what he says. But it's an interesting phenomena to, to even just wonder on. Um, so, so to... Um to use what you often say and what, what we often talk about, about frequencies, mm -hmm. uh, I think we could relate synchronicity uh, with uh, the alignment of two frequencies, like mm -hmm. your brain waves would align with my brain waves, and then there's the synchronization. It's like when you, you have two generators, you want to sync together, so you have A here, B here, and they're not completely aligned with their frequencies, their phase, and their voltage. You will synchronize them so that they're, they're in line together. And eventually, what you make the breaker, you put them in line together, and boom, you get electricity. But before you, you do this, you have to make sure they align. And I think, I think the best way to explain synchronicity, in my mind, and I haven't read a lot about it, is that. It's just you're in phase with the frequency of someone else's current thoughts. So um, what level of control do you expect we have over our frequencies slash uh, alignment? I mean, that sounds like it would be highly beneficial to align with as many frequencies as possible. What do you think? I don't know if you can. Um, your 
brainwaves all have a certain frequency, uh, and it's a base frequency, it's a baseline. And that's why when you meet someone, someone else, you say, sometimes you say, whoa, Stay away from me. I don't really want to be with you because you're getting on my nerves. And some some other people are just attracted to them. And, oh, oh, we seem to get along. We have a lot in common. Then okay. there's more. The synchronicity is 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 closer. So do we do we change in time as we get older? I'm Does sure we do. frequency change. I think our thoughts. I think we can change our thoughts, and I think we can filter our thoughts. But I think that our thoughts overall create that baseline frequency and i think bruce lipton and a few other doctors are now starting to prove this science and and i um what i'm hearing is that uh fear and and uh stress and negative thoughts actually produce a frequency that causes cells to to um uh defect in a whole number of ways causing i think they were saying 90% of our illnesses known to man, are caused by these frequencies or, or can be related to. I don't know the exact science yet, but it's... And then he's saying the frequency of love and being in a state of mind of love and loving yourself is actually a healing frequency. And, and they're starting to prove this with science now. Apparently so. I'm not, I'm not claiming... Um, to be certain on this idea, but there's a wave of media going out now. The guy's name is Bruce Lipton. He's a doctor. And Bruce, Bruce Lipton. L-I-P-T-O-N. Yeah. And uh, some of the videos are quite simple um, that he has on YouTube to explain his, uh, his sciences, um, but I've only seen two. But uh, the, the logistics seem pretty pretty self-explanatory i mean if you're he, he explains chemical releases within the body when you're when you're feeling pain uh i think it's pain basically there's only one here's the interesting thing with all the different types of illnesses and injuries and emotional states there's only one way for us to register pain and um I think when we get into that state, we start to screw up the frequency of our cells. And as they regenerate themselves and duplicate, et cetera, they um, actually, when we're in the state of pain they or fear, they, uh, they stop growth. They, they stop um, reproducing. We... You should watch the video, and I should probably uh, get better acquainted with this material. But there's a science saying that the love heals and stress kills. Have you any experience or thoughts on this? Well, uh, well uh, it seems obvious to me that when you have loving thoughts, you're much happier than when you have hatred thoughts. Yeah. You're in a different, much different place. So I, I think what you're... So to a certain extent, from our conversations, there's always everything is related to frequency. So a chemical will have a certain frequency if it's generated into into the body. So anything we say can relate to frequencies. But what you're alluding to uh, is the fight or flight sort of thing. Yeah. And in this society, 
because of stress, the stress from work, we have become into a fight or flight sort of situation on a permanent basis. Mm-hmm. And what that does, it does release uh, endorphin uh, or not endorphin, but it does release chemicals. I believe it's an acid. The what? I believe the chemical our body releases is some type of acid. It could be. Uh, At least so, one of them is. So when you're, let's say you're stressed all day, so your body will generate a chemical that would make you hyped, alert, and ready for anything. But this is this sort of uh, state state is supposed to be meant for specific situation where your life is in danger. So in the past, you would have an animal running at you. Those chemicals would kick in, and you'd be stronger, you'd be faster. Your heartbeat will 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 beat faster, and you'll be more alert. You, and that, but after that, you've just reminded me. You've just reminded me of that part of the video. Yes. Yeah, so when in the fight or flight, basically what your cells do is they turn off all regeneration and turn a hun- and your body turns a hundred percent of its energy to escape. And so, the, and and through and through the act of turning off all regeneration, that that also creates a lot of illness. Um, it's really sad that we've allowed ourselves to get into this um, perpetual fight or flight kind of emotional state. This uh, level of suffering at what cost? These perceived comforts that we uh, enjoy is that. Are they really worth it? And um, well, they're they're worth it for corporations who make money hmm. with them, because the pharmaceutical companies make a ton of money on your fight, fight and flight, fight or flight sort of attitude, because you get sick, like the lack of generation of regeneration of your cells. Well, that creates illnesses. They prescribe you medicine, and then. Other thing, in other ways, you'll, you'll go out and you'll have comfort food, you'll buy stuff, and you'll try to comfort yourself in a, in a lot of ways. So if you look at it, corporations are, and the institution is actually uh, creating this, and they want you to be sick and in that mode all the time. So you're right. I, I think your observation is that we as a society are living a depleted lifestyle in comparison to our natural... Um, our true nature. Um, but that raises the question, what are the richest people in the world doing with all this money? Are they in fight or flight or are they just on top of Mount Everest meditating with our money? They're creating a legacy because that's how they um, perpetuate their, their own people. They, they have so much money they cannot run out and they give it to their kids and it, it's a power but what do they do with the power? Do they do they at least enjoy it? Does does anybody get out of the fight or flight mode, or are they too in fight or flight mode? That's what I'm wondering. You know, but a friend of mine said, if you cannot get love, you'll go after power. Ooh. Maybe that's what it is. Hmm. Well, that's true, and and you know, I I've I'm aware of dysfunctional relationships. Where there's no love, there's just this weird power struggle thing going on. Actually, most relationships have a power struggle of some sort. Um, I mean romantic relationships, but also other relationships, professional relationships can have power struggles, I guess. Um, 
what else is going on in, in your mind in, in, of exploration, uh, Stefan? What, what else did uh, Steiner indicate about um, this um, healing of frequencies of uh, metaphysical organs, etc.? Well, what uh, Steiner would see meditation as the way to break the cycle. Um, meditation, okay, so there's the, the, the awake state and there is the sleeping state. So in the awake state, the physical body uh, is, uh, is very active. And I think so is the ethereal body, I have to verify. And then at night, the astral body and the eye are both very active, and the other ones, the body and the ether etheric bodies are dormant. But there, there is a middle state where you could, you, you should, you would have access to uh, what you get in the sleeping state, the from the unconscious mind and the astral plane through meditation. So you, you basically shut down your body but consciously have access to the astral plane. And that's, that would be the way to, to do that through meditation. That's what he would say in very, very simplistic terms. Did Steiner say anything about psychedelic drugs that took you to this hypnotic state? He never does. He's never even once mentioned. He didn't need it, did he? he? Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, I, may, I haven't read all his books. But from what I've seen of it, I don't think he will ever mention it. It's not part of his vocabulary. It's right. not. I know what. I, I think I know you're alluding to Crowley potentially, who's done extensive research, research air brackets <laughs> on drugs and spirituality. He's an opium addict. Uh, he has a extensive writing. No, no, I wasn't. I, I was actually referring to. This new thing that's happening up outside of Crowley, the ayahuasca. Do you know what's happening with ayahuasca and, and what's been reported? I'll tell I've you. Been, uh, I've, I've been to South America, to South America in, in, in the jungles of Peru. I think it's Peru. Is it Peru? It's either Peru or... It's, uh, it is Peru. Okay. It is Peru. And, 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 let me finish. So, uh, so the uh, shamans there use ayahuasca yeah. uh, to apparently have visions. And they also say that the first time you take ayahuasca, you, you throw up a lot because it's supposed to eliminate the toxins in your body. And eventually you, you would receive, you're supposed to be receiving uh, messages from entities. Entity. Well, I, 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 would, I would caution anyone who wants to get into that. Well, that's what I was going to bring up. So what the report is, so ayahuasca, the main ingredient is that the psychedelic ingredient is DMT. And what is being reported by many people from different cultures separately, they've all reported encounters with very similar creatures. So that makes me wonder, is is the drug carrying the visualization? Is it stimulating a part in our DNA where that visualization is stored of these creatures? And 
And I mean, the craziest one was a woman after yoga class. She said to me that she had just done an ayahuasca trip. And that's why she was back at yoga for the first time in five years. Because she had a debilitating back injury. But during this ayahuasca trip, celestial beings, she called them, performed surgery on her body metaphysically and cured her. And like these same celestial beings, if she were to describe how they look, are reported in all everybody's psychedelic trip. So I'm, what, do you, what do you think that is? Do you think that a drug could carry a frequency, a mental frequency like a thought? Do you think that's possible? Do you think our DNA carries our thoughts in any way? So, so, so you and I have very different views on, on psychedelic drugs. Yes. Uh, mine is I'm, I'm because of my upbringing, uh, I'm biased against it. I was never allowed around it. I'm in the military, so mm-hmm. there's always been illegal for me, and mm-hmm. it's, it's become this this kind of alien thing that I know nothing about. Right. However. The way I see it, and from what I hear from the stories and all that, is that drugs used to achieve another state of mind are crutches, and in the long run, will will only lead to an addiction because eventually, you'll you'll that's the only way you'll find to find comfort and communicate with those entities. Uh, now, that, that that's my personal point of view. I, I, mean, I would if, agree if with you. you. Indulge in it, and that's their. their their thing, their prerogative, but I, I caution people against it because you achieving enlightenment because that's really what we talk about. Yeah. To become better is about discipline. It's about practice. And it's a, it's about a lifestyle. So the drugs lead to something completely different. What I'm referring to is is um more of a curiosity towards the towards the sciences why would shaman first of all why would so many people from different cultures without these memories without like any reference or uh, and communication amongst them why would they all have similar contacts with with something and and that's not that's not just reported with DMT the shamans see plants as teachers and and if trees and plants have consciousness, perhaps they are our teachers, and perhaps the f- biological interaction with the chemicals they release in our bodies is one way they teach us. I'm just so curious about what kind of truth can be uncovered uh, on, on that, uh, especially when we're so opposed academically and scientifically in really exploring frequencies to their fullest. I mean, we just say, oh, we don't see it. Let's not study it. So plants as teachers is interesting, and I'm going to have to meditate on that. Yeah. But for people to see the same thing, that's actually well documented. Mm -hmm. Uh, Myths towards history. uh, It doesn't matter where you go. It's always the same sort of thing you see. Uh, and Carl Jung speaks uh, extensively on, on myths and the archetypes. And these are all archetypes. So, for example, in ancient Egypt, has similar myths than you would find in, in the Greek, ancient Greek. And then we, we start to find the same thing in Christianity. We always find the, the same sort of archetypes. And then, then um, 
the tarot cards, the, their projection of the, all the archetypes that are mm-hmm. within us, they're learned from, uh, from our uh, uh, various incarnation, our DNA remembers those things, and that's all they are. They are, in my mind, they are archetypes. And the myths are, are basically, you're taking the archetypes that we have in there from, and your dreams, your visions, and you're putting them into words. And then you can go into Goetian magic. It is the same as well, I think. The 72 demons that you would go there, they all have a face, uh, they all have an animal attached to them, and they all have a certain demeanor. But these are all archetypes, again. Animals are, are, are used the same as an old, an old man. What, what would be the so so archetypes are me- messengers, but what would be their origin? Are there is would you see their origin? Um, some people see their origin in purely physical. So archetypes are a physical origin because of our um, evolutionary experiences, um, which maybe are locked in our DNA and become unlocked through a memory. What, what what do you think about it? Do you think it's an actual Separate frequency. So there's um. What we try to so we have two worlds: a world that's timeless and, and spaceless, and mm-hmm. the astral plane. And you have the world we live in is physical, and it's 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 bound by time, and it's bound by space. Everything we do has those boundaries. So in between the two worlds. There's archetypes that will that will allow communication from the other realm to our realm. Mm-hmm. It's it's programming to us. It's it's like trying to talk about something that it's like talking to talk to, trying to talk about God. It's like what is God? Well, it's it's nothing really. Uh, it's it's everything. It's everywhere. And you're like, well, that that's nonsense. It doesn't make sense. So what do you do? We do. We have a picture of an old man. Well, what is what is an old man? It's an old man is a wise person, a, a person who's like super old, has a lot of experience, who would be a teacher. Well, that's that's how we project the idea of God. So everything is projected the same way. So when we communicate, I think with the uh, this is all. You know, speculations, mm-hmm. um, unless you've actually done it and been there, it's all speculation. But it's the archetypes are a language, just like the alphabet, that tells us a story with, relating to something we know. Uh, I, physical. I, I like to simplify everything you've said into, I'll try to elocute uh, um, is that everything in existence is an echo of that kind of initial frequency which kind of sparked existence and uh, and kind of bounces off and interacts with each other. And these archetypes are basically kind of an impulse in which we probably cycle through and in and out of kind of like the zodiac signs or whatever, but we're... There's an energy that uh, in life we kind of uh, can get stuck in or bounce or, go, or pass through and come out of. Um, and I wonder if these archetypes are just our human way of, of kind of experiencing this and understanding this because uh, they're usually personified, which is interesting. Um, 
what I was going to do is uh, why I'm kind of half in that thought and half out that thought, not really uh, saying it right, is because while you were talking, I also was thinking, you know, you're right, and Steiner would be right, that there is no need. Even if the plants are teachers and messengers, I mean, based on that type of metaphysical theology, we, ha- we are also connected to them, and we also have all those frequencies and all those messages and all that history and all that DNA and kind of like the way they germinate, we germinate as well. And maybe our evolution started as a plant and we've just become more and more complex until we eventually separated from the earth and started walking around. I don't know. I don't, I don't truly, I mean, it's fun to wonder on, but it's not that important to me. Um, but, um, it's even in our physicality. DMT uh, is theorized or proven to be released by our brain. Um, so our bodies also have these chemicals kind of innate in them. And, and if they're not innate in a physical format, at least the DNA coding is, pl- is possible within the, all the unused DNA that we have. It's probably all that unused DNA... Um, if reconfigured, we could probably uh, we could probably. I, I guess the codes for DNA are just. What do you know about DNA, uh, Stefan? Do you know anything about DNA? You're all I, I am jumping all over the place. My mind, my mind is struggling to to try to um, say something and express something, but it's so abstract. I'm going all over the place while I'm trying to do it. Yeah. I'll finish your first thought on the on the chemicals in our brains, and I'll switch to the DNA. Okay. So the, the chemicals in our in your brain, and I read a really interesting book. I'll, I'll go get it. It's French. It's probably translated in English, but he explains how the different chemicals in your brain exist and morph depending on your state of mind and what you need. Okay. So our brain is a chemical manufa- manufacturer that produces all these things that make everything possible. If you're well-balanced, you won't get headaches, you'll feel good about things, you'll react a certain certain way when it's time, you'll react another way when it's time again. And that's all has to do with the chemicals in your brain. So, uh, for example, the best example I can find is, let's say you get up in the morning, you're super tired, and you need a coffee. I have my coffee already, and I feel better now. But... Your brain will stop producing whatever you need to be to be up in the morning, up and running, because it's like, yeah, whatever. You're going to give it to me anyway. So why am I wasting my time? That's your brain talking. Why? Why am I wasting my time producing this thing that's going to wake you up when you're you're giving it to me anyway? So stop producing. Mm-hmm. So that that's why the next day when you don't have your coffee and you decide not to have one, you'll be super tired because your brain stopped producing that because like. He's getting it anyway, so who gives a shit? And the second day, then you're going to be saying, eventually the third day, he's like, I need that. So you're going to start getting headaches because mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't produce that, that caffeine sort of effect. And you're not introducing it to it. And eventually your brain says, well, you're not producing it. You're not giving it to me anymore. I will produce it again. So it kicks back into it, and you'll notice that maybe four or five days down the road, you don't need coffee. You're super up in the morning when you get up because your brain produces it. 
Agua y ayahuasca, same thing. Uh, mm -hmm. Psychedelic drugs, same thing. If you produce something, if you give to your body a drug that allows it, your body to go somewhere, your brain is going to stop producing and it's going to want it because it is a drug chemical industry. But, well, that's and also what I was trying to uh, point out was that exact effect is, is uh, w it, it's actually thought by science that we can produce DMT without any external source. We, we just need food and water, and our bodies can produce DMT. In fact, in the pineal gland, they imagine is where it's produced. And, and I find that really interesting because that means when I do slip into deep meditation slash trance, am I releasing DMT? Is that what that experience is? Are those vivid dreams that I have at night, um, DMT trips? Um, it could be. They could be, right? And that's pretty it interesting to think of. Uh, but when it's naturally produced, it's, it's fine. It just kicks in when it's time. The thing with mm -hmm. taking drugs externally is that you're inducing a state of, a state of mind, a, a physical state yeah. that uh, is not meant to be. You're not ready for it yet. You just induce it at the wrong time. It's well, dangerous. I would see a shaman that said that would be uh, that that knew what plants to get into a state that he was already uh, able to get into. I don't know. I could see them using it as a tool, uh, a, a practical tool, and I wouldn't see any real moral ethical dilemma with it. But I I I I do see it exhibits a sense a, a level of inequality to the person that can do these things without any assistance, right? Um, so that's, and I do believe we have the capability to do healings and, and metaphysical manifestation, etc. without, uh, and, and also just to achieve that kind of love state, that harmonic mental emotional frequency, we don't need drugs, you're right, and I feel sad about one example. I have a friend whose wife is depressed, and I, she, he, he is so hopeless in his relationship that he believes that not even meditation can help her. What do you think of that? I believe meditation can help her if she persevered. Well, society has conditioned us to, to take medicine for everything. So if you don't believe that something is going to help you or believe that something will help you, well, mm. it most likely will or won't help you depending on what you, you think. Mm -hmm. And our thoughts are really affected by uh, the way we were conditioned. So if, and, and then with those drugs, it has the same effect as what I discussed here earlier with coffee, but to, to a, a more important effect. So the the chemicals in the brain that are not there that are failing now are being replaced by uh, other sort of drugs that imbalance the brain and eventually the brain stops stops producing them. What and about DNA? Like it's waiting for the next dose. What about DNA? I I see DNA as a more complex kind of binary code, and you know, just to say what I was trying clear what I was trying to point out earlier is. With binary code, you could switch on, switch off, switch on, switch off, and with a different code, you could achieve a different image, a different uh, different data, right? So in our DNA, 
we have it's known that some of it is switched on, some of it is switched off, and that which is switched on causes us to grow into into what we are, our complex cellular creatures. What do you think about the fact that we may have switched off DNA or like in our bodies, in our DNA there's there's coding that if we just imagine you could switch it on and off, you could change into a duck or something. Because the coding's there, like the flower coding. Do you think that? I think that I think that that's kind of true genetically. Like we are, there's so much DNA that's relatable to to animals. It's just switched off. What do you know about this? I um, I dare you to turn into a duck. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> so, so Charles, the, um, I think that well, you answered your question and you. You, you have the answer in your question. So the, the DNA is a program. Yeah. And it, it, it uh, gives us the five fingers on the one hand, the five fingers on the other, big lumpy head, eyes, ears. It gives us all the stuff that we have that's basic, the, the internal organs. The, there are differences in, in the, the DNA sequence from one person to another because we don't look the same. We have different shapes, we have different attributes, and the program is different, but the essence, there's a baseline program. Just like potentially you have a computer with a Mac OS certain version, like 10.0, and, but this program is, is my baseline. But then you inject a language program, you have FaceTime in it, you have another one. But those those are what makes that, that program unique. But you have your unique sort of uh, attributes. Uh, you're, you're an electrician because you are a certain way, because the program you have in you gives you the ability to be to think that way. A musician will have a different program. Right. Well, some of, it's, some of it's learned and some of it's DNA. I, I get what you're saying. Do you think that we could turn on or off our DNA programming? Do you think DNA can be changed while the life form is in existence? I honestly don't know. I think we're starting to prove it, actually, and discover that environmental factors switch on and off DNA. Have you heard you of that? Sure it's the DNA you're, you're switching on and off, or is it's your brain and the way it's wired, or is the way our brain is wired has an effect on the DNA? I think what they're doing is tests on, on more simple organisms, like single cell, etc., and they're finding that through environmental stresses, they can, they can witness DNA um, like mutations occur. And now I'm not sure if the muta mutations are happening in the next generation or if they're happening in the live generation. I'm not, I'm not sure, but one thing I can imagine very easily is, you know, um, the King Arthur uh, Disney film with Merlin the Magician who change has a battle with a witch and they're both changing into different creatures and, and it's kind of like a game of scissor rock papers. Because one changes into a, a lion, the next one into a bear or a dragon, and, you know, just they're one up in each other. But, you know, that's a legend that obviously a human imagination came up with. But now we're kind of seeing the DNA switched on and switched off, and we're maybe even proving that environmental factors can do so. What about metaphysical factors? Can we become such a great metaphysical wizard we could turn ourselves into a dragon because it's latent in our DNA. That'd be really cool. <laughs> That'd be really cool. Yeah. Ask a question. Uh, 
Uh, it looks like the uh, mutation in, into uh, into humans it takes much more time than it does in animals, mm -hmm. and from that you can look at the Darwin sort of uh, effects. And uh, if you if you go to Galapagos, <coughs> you'll see that from one island to another, um, the um, the mutations are very very evident, yeah. and they happen they they happen very quickly for birds and other species, but for humans, it takes much more time. Um, are there, like a virus, mutation mm -hmm. happens in a lifetime of the virus. Mm -hmm. It mutates on its own just like that. It does. Mm. So, I, so if, if, you, if we would be able to, to do like a virus and mutate on demand, maybe, but how do you do that? That's a good question. I wouldn't know. Mm. Do you have an idea on how we could do that? Um... <sighs> No, but if we f if we discover how to switch on and or off uh, DNA, which I'm not even what is that proteins? How would you switch on a protein? I'm not even sure the science there, or the biology. I've heard more proteins for DNA. I believe uh, DNA is a pro. They they have four proteins within DNA, and it's a spiraling ladder. I, it's very interesting as a structure because we see it in all kinds of ancient geometry and, and symbolism and, and theology. Um, also interesting is the four uh, proteins, four different proteins. That's um, kind of duality doubled. And, and we see that in, in north, south, east, west. We see that in... A, it, it's in it, I really am intrigued by the evidence of a structure to existence. That's... Really intriguing to me because I wonder and imagine and, and uh, dream about um, uh, an era where we learn so much about this architecture that we can master it. And, uh, you know, just like the idea of switching on and off DNA with metaphysical concentration or something like that. I mean, it's, right now it's a fantasy, but... If there's enough structure and we can discover it all, just like I'm an electrician and, and learned how to manipulate that force, uh, and and you know, and we build structures and stuff, I I wonder and fantasize about what we can discover. And I think Wi Fi and EI and stuff like that, they're all fascinating, but I think they're all very physical and I think there's so many non-physical things that are truly in existence that we're not exploring. And I think that's where the real, if we just start applying all these shapes we find in ancient civilizations to uh, abstract ideas on energy frequencies, we'll probably discover a whole world of sciences of uh, different levels of frequencies. How they, I mean, there are people doing it with, with uh, frequencies of light and sound and stuff like that. Um, but why stop there is my kind of uh, thing I would like to know about electromagnetic subtle forces and and the interaction and communication with bugs and plants and animals more. Uh, that's not very explored. There is some research, but do you know if that's well-funded research or if it's just one or two scientists in, in a century? <laughs> yeah. I think if does if it does not have an immediate sort of a revenue 
or profit attached to it. Mm-hmm. It's put to the side. So that is why military research is funded to the max because to fight the war, they sell it to the different uh, the opposing factions so they can wage war and then purchase more of their uh, their mm-hmm. dead machines. The same, ha- the same is for medicine. Uh, a lot of funding goes in there because we're an addictive sort of popula- uh, sort of species, and they will fund that to death because they know they can sell it at a high price. But when it comes to spirituality and stuff like this, well, does it? How does it benefit the material world? What if, what if everybody's happy? Do you, mm. What can you sell a happy person? Nothing really. Because that person will eat less, will don't take, not take drugs, not take alcohol, most likely will live in a small house, will live off the grid, potentially, uh, and have produce his or her own electricity. So, and a happy person, you, you can't sell anything to a happy person. That person does not watch television, that person doesn't spend all day on the internet. You can't sell anything to that person. So that's not funded. Because well-being is not something that you can make money with. Yeah, but I, I don't think well-being is all we'll achieve. Um, we still don't know how they engineered the pyramids, and I would imagine it has something to do with frequencies we still don't understand. I mean, if you want to move boulders and stuff like that that you can't with regular physical power, perhaps frequencies can. I mean, sound can break glass. It can make things move. Yeah, but have you- Place a lot of effort into oh why did you did they build the pyramids this way why did they do this and this and that but have you ever thought that maybe they just try things and they just put it together that way because they decided to it's like an architect building a house sometimes look at what the what is that you know it's it's got this weird shape but maybe maybe it just happened maybe it has sense maybe it, it means something but maybe it means nothing. Maybe someone just said, well, there's been a pyramid. We have a lack of uh, jobs in the area, so we'll build these pyramids. <laughs> just like Trump and his damn wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Think about it. Well, what is the wall? The wall is not to separate us from them. It's to create jobs and have people focusing on the wall. So they create jobs. People are happy when, they're, when they work. They have an ideal. Let's separate us from the rest of the world. There's your ideal. Let's all go get together and eliminate the terrorists and the immigrants. This, this is what it is behind it. So in the end, the pyramids may just be the same. They need a job. People were depressed. And they said, the pharaoh said, let's put together these pyramids. Let's bring jobs and... And make it something so weird that they're going to take thousands thousands of years trying to understand something that means nothing. Maybe that's all it is. Well, I think, that, I think that that point doesn't apply to my question about how did they get those big yeah, stones have, in place. They have thousands and thousands of people pulling on these things. Did they really? Yes, I've I've heard I've heard skeptical evidence saying they they couldn't they didn't have a labor force that large even available. And then they said, if you have thousands of thousands of people to pull it, how do where do you put them when they're pulling it at the top of the structure? So engineers have yet to discover how this is how it was physically done, and they cannot replicate that kind of construction. 
and and I don't care about the randomness and the and the and the uh, whether or not the pyramids were a message or not. And I think there's probably I, my my theory would be the equilateral triangle and the equilateral triangle pyramid, as well as other geometric shapes and patterns, are clues into um, the structure of frequency, which we can then discover and kind of have an Atlantean age where we're hovering around and floating. I don't know what we're doing. Speaking with animals, bringing back the phoenix, whatever, flying on top of the phoenix, whatever. Uh, I have a great imagination, but, but also I think that there's some plausibility to these very root geometric shapes having true science and frequency and, and possibly this is why they built these things to kind of remind us, give us a clue. Uh, the, the pyramid not being able to be replicated by our engineering sciences to me means our engineering sciences are way far behind those are the people, whoever they were, that built the pyramids. Doesn't that indicate that? I mean, we can't do it. If we wanted to, we can't. And we have billions of people. Okay. And we have Trump. I, I don't know if I really agree with you on this one. You don't? If we wanted to build pyramids, we would be able to, I think. But um, we, we don't know everything that they had in, in that time. Uh, hmm. the, they yeah. wrote on rocks, but they mostly wrote about spirituality, not necessarily about physics. Uh, they had papyrus, but these papyrus were all gone because they don't last. So they may have had other means of doing things that we don't know of. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they're they're better or they're worse. It just means that they were there were ways that that could be useful for them at that time. Um, and, and when you look at the um, uh, the design of pyramids, they, they, they had kind of a, a, a stairs sort of go. He go, he went around in a very small mm -hmm. slope mm -hmm. around it, and all that. That's one of the the, the, the hypothesis behind it uh, is that when they did, they were done constructing it, all those that sort of ladder thing around it, like a special access for people with wheelchairs, they would take them down, and then you have the pyramids. It's, it's kind of like I've seen those. I've seen those sketches, but as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, all the Egyptologists, and we know that they are not always accurate. They say that engineering has yet to discover how they move those whatever ton amount of tons blocks, and how they and 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 some of the maneuvers and beams and and like over the chambers, etc. I believe there's no known way for us to get these things up and to and suspend them into the uh, into the structure the way we did. And if that's the case, I also play. I, I so I've always been playing with that in my mind, and especially on the topic of Egypt. I believe the things written in stone, which we are taught are lessons of spirituality. I believe they are coded. Um, lessons in physics, actually, or metaphysics. And I think that, um, I think that we were, we, 
I wonder if we and and I play with the idea if if we looked at all the ancient teachings from a quantum physics perspective, what we what kind of insight we would unlock, and I and I wonder if the insights would be about structure and frequency and shapes and even emotional frequency and archetypes, mental state, etc. I think they're all combined. But what you're saying, Charles, is that you can make anything out of those hieroglyphs because we yeah. don't know much about them. So you, we can theorize to the to to the end of time that mm -hmm. it's spiritual, it's metaphysical, it's physical, it's frequencies, it's this and it's that. Mm -hmm. We can theorize as much as we want, but unless from someone from that time comes in and says, "Hey," You dumbass. This it has nothing to do with it. It's a soup recipe. Yeah. You, 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 we won't know. So we, we the best soup in the world. Imagine. What was that? The best soup in the world. We had to write it in stone. But, but it, you know, it, it, it gives you and I purpose to believe that there was an ancient civilization yeah. that was so spirit to us, uh, spirituality, spiritually, that. It's, it's worth exploring and and trying to emulate in some ways because we we don't you and I look at the world a different way than most people and we I, I don't really care for for the world I live in uh, I show up at work every day I do my things but really in the end there's nothing interesting about this world and this metaphysical sort of thing gives you a nice purpose because oh there's something else out there it's something to study it keeps us busy during this lifetime and in the end we'll probably look at it and say well that was a waste of time okay <laughs> but mm -hmm. yeah it, it just it's it just stimulates our curious minds because the physical world is not interesting for us so we go back in those times and dream about something better that's I'm, I'm not as I'm not as sad about the world as you are. I do have that <laughs> I do have that thread of thought and, and emotion uh, within me that I carry around. But uh, no, I'm really I, I I consider metaphysics to be um um part of the just the unknown. That what it's what it means the unknown physical forces of life and and I I uh, it does give me meaning but it also gives me entertainment and play and the more of it the more that I could for me the more that I could that I could take the theology and relate it to the sciences the the happier I become and the more depth and creativity and, and entertainment and even knowledge do I get from that. Uh, I, I believe that uh, pairing the two sciences and theology often can be very fruitful um, if done balanced and, and subjectively. You know, you, you, don't, you don't pair them. Um, you, you have to have criteria to pair them with. You know, you have to be but logical. It's interesting what you said because Steiner refers to spirituality as spiritual science. Mm -hmm. Because he yeah. said, it, it, because 
just because we don't understand it a bit, just because we can't measure or see it, doesn't mean that it does not exist. I think there will come a time when anything spiritual will be measurable in some means. We may mm -hmm. even be able to, to put together machines that actually can uh, measure the soul and, and then uh, all these other components that we have that we can't see and all the, the brain waves. I think we'll be able to, to, see, uh, to see that at some point. But just it, it, a science is something that we're comfortable with, something that we can actually put formulas into it. But spirituality will... It's not a science just because we haven't deployed all the necessary energy to actually discover what it is. Yeah. Uh, people look at it and say, well, you're wasting your time. Uh, people don't go to church anymore. And if they go, even if they go to church, they, they uh, rely on external sort of influence. They don't look within. I had a conversation with a friend of mine and was saying that we're talking about the soul. And it's saying, well, the soul is something that it's, a, it's like a vase. It's a recipient for God to pour in. That's what Christianity and most religions are about, is that the soul is on its own, separated from, from God itself, and eventually if God so chooses to, if you're a good believer, you go to church and you pay your money, then God will recognize this and then will pour your soul with his energy, whatever, whatever it is. But for you and I, the soul is an extension of God, making us God ourselves. It's like the, the drop of water in, a, in an ocean. That's what, it, what the soul is for us. So uh, because it's external like this uh, in Christianity, they, they won't, they won't, if they consider that way, they will never be able to understand what uh, spirituality is, and eventually it will never become a science. But I think people like us, if we use our our being, our pineal gland, and all the, the stuff that that is within us to measure such frequencies, because pineal gland is really uh, an antenna. And in the book it says it has piezoelectric sort of uh, crystals in the pineal gland, hmm. actually that are there to pick up frequencies, just like an antenna does. Uh, and we use ourselves as a measuring sort of instrument, what does spirituality become? Science. Because you get the messages. You just have to decipher them at that point. Yeah, I, th I think there's something to do to discover about subconscious um, language and, um, and how it relates to physical materialism. So I, I, it's just an intuitive thought I have that... Um, S similar to the idea that of the exercise of imagining the germination and full bloom of a flower, uh, perhaps through the mental frequency of that image, internalizing that image, perhaps you actually can later measure, or maybe we'll later learn how to measure the related response in our cells and our DNA. You know, just like, like uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton is now discovering there's much beneficial frequency to the, the state of love. Um, I actually think that these shapes and these images have more acute effect on our biology. And that's why uh, the ancient traditions of metaphysics, be what they are, actually uh, bear uh, fruitful results with earnest practitioners because 
what the practitioners are actually doing is affecting their own biology or even the material, the frequencies affecting the material world around them uh, to varying degrees. And, and, I, and, and I would imagine that um, structures such as the Great Pyramids, which have certain weird geometric and um, geographical phenomena um, within their structure and planning, I would imagine they probably, we could probably deduce some insights to how all these things I'm describing and I imagine occur, occur. And if we could get insights, then we could probably cause them to happen more and more. And perhaps it's so simple, we only have to learn how to visualize white light. And, that, and, and that's it. And, and block out the rest of the noise. Perhaps that's what it is. But, but um, do you see what I mean? It, it looks like you understand my, yeah, my I see, idea. I see what you mean. Uh, you're, you're talking about basic shapes uh, that make up our physical society. And it's really, if you look at it, uh, the shapes, if you look at um, a little bit into resistance, uh, like materials, like engineer, material engineering, you'll see that the uh, every or every sort of mineral, everything you see in nature is is put together microscopically into a basic shape. That we yeah. It's spherical, it's triangular, it's square, and, and it's really interesting to see how perfect the shapes are in there. So it is in nature. You're absolutely right. And and is it is it a frequency thing? Well, everything's frequency. We've established that already. So I think it's they're, they're just we're just using the shapes that we already know. They are in us, and we put them out there. I, I think they they are in us because I think that they are the building blocks of existence. These frequencies, these shapes. Um, that's that's all I I mean. And I think that if we ex truly explore it with our sciences and put everything in, uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, Elon Musk will hear this conversation and do that. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe instead of his flamethrower, this is not a flamethrower. Maybe he'll invent a uh, a cone that you <laughs> no, yeah, you just attach these cones to your wrists, and then your thoughts will manifest things, and you can build a pyramid. It only takes one guy with these cones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you could influence thoughts, I mean, you could the world. <laughs> Well, they do uh, influence thoughts. Do you want. Yeah. Well, they the whoever is controlling the world or in charge of the media, they do influence our thoughts with with uh, yeah. in a very yeah, measurable way. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, Stefan, I think we've explored a whole bunch of ideas today. I think so. Yeah, that was a good uh, morning morning talk. Um, my uh, thanks uh, to Marsha for being so patient with, with our conversation. She's and so, a patient woman. Yes. And uh, good morning to you guys, and have a great day. Well, same to you. Uh, we didn't even have to think about a work. We just jump in with, what was that again? We talked with the flower exercise. Yeah. yeah. You, you jumped in with, with Steiner, right? Yeah. And, and uh, I'm almost done that book. I got like... Uh, what page is it? What, what's the book called? What? What's the book called? This one. Um, an outline of esoteric science.
Yeah, science is even in the name. A book from Steiner, this is the one I recommend you start with because it explains a lot of his theories. Because he, mm. he talks about the, the planets, uh, the Saturn, uh, the Saturn, Sun, the Moon, the Earth as the, the uh, etheric, as astral, the eye, the physical world. Mm. And he speaks of the, the, the rest of the celestial bodies as intermediate sort of things. And his other books, I start with his other books, and he always really hits those things. So if you don't know what he means by that, right. it's really difficult to read. So I would say this is the kind of like the, the guide to, to Steiner. That's good advice. Was that? That's good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, this one is, I think, is a starter book. I learned a lot from it I've, I've, after having read a lot of his other books. And the next one is uh, the uh, Something to Higher Worlds. And that one is about spiritual training, I think, initiation, mm -hmm. the guardians and the astral plane and all that stuff. So when I'm done with this one, that's the one I'm going to get into. I think Steiner's insights are incredibly valuable, and I think that uh, his language and imagery is very potent and artistic and poetic. And I, I'm, a, I'm a fan from what I know, so yeah. I will uh, have to pick up that book and, and read it myself. And um, reading that book, I'm sure, was a form of meditation this morning. Uh, you said you didn't get to meditate, but I think you did without realizing. I, I actually read the 20 or 30 pages of his book every single morning. Hmm. That's, that's nice. Work, it starts off my brain. Yeah. And it helps me out. And it gives you, know, you something after, to reflect that, on. It's, it's, it's not straightforward, so you have to think about what you read. Mm -hmm. I have my coffee, I read a little bit of Steiner, then I go to work. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, I guess it's my do you always wear your Peruvian poncho when you read Steiner? I wear it all day long. <clears throat> do you wear it at work? Except at work. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> that would probably be a real good reaction. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't, I don't think they appreciate that. Okay, take care, man. Yeah, take care. See ya. Bye, Say guys. Say hi to uh, your family for me. Yeah, hi to Marsha. See ya. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Special thanks to Jamesy the Band, jamesytheband.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to The Fool's Journey.